0: I was standing by my window on one cold and cloudy day when I saw that her scum rolling toward carrying.
1: Welcome to the Unbroken Circle, a very special Math of You event. I'm Lucas Brown. In this four-part series, my guests and I will be discussing Discworld, the epic comic fantasy series by the late Sir Terry Pratchett. Over the course of four episodes, we will discuss the characters and themes that roam across all 41 novels, plus myriad diaries, maps, almanacs, compendiums, companions, art books, cookbooks, and honest-to-God science texts. In this episode, the co-host of the House to Astonish podcast, Al Kennedy, is here to talk about the death of Discworld and his supporting cast. Along the way, we discussed do's and don'ts for interviewing Terry Pratchett, how an anthropomorphic personification can be a lot like Norm from Cheers, and the studied ordinary of reverse goth Susan Stowhele. And because it's the math of you, we'll finish with a signature cocktail that'll be like biting a red-hot ice cube. We join this conversation already in progress.
0: Well, be the day when you say Someday we'll all, the world.
1: Be the day. all right, Al, for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake?
0: I'm Al Kennedy. I'm a Scottish podcaster and comics... Is it... Wanky to call myself a comics critic? I don't know. But it's for. somebody... I think it complains about comics on the internet is probably the, the closest it gets. Yeah, and I've been doing that for... Well, gosh, since probably about 2000 ish, I used to write for Ninth Art, which was just wonderful comics criticism website which i think the archive is still up at ninthart.org and if you want to go and check that out you can see me writing articles back in like 2002 and stuff like that (laughs) and moved on to my own stuff a little bit after that including the podcast that i'm probably best known for which is called house to astonish which the name comes from a Wizard article from 1997, as so many of the best ideas do. <laughs> and it was a rejected title for a book in the Amalgam crossover, which Mark <laughs> Wade had apparently suggested to his editors. He wanted to do some kind of cross between you know, a House of Mystery or House of Secrets and Tales to Astonish, and they said no. <laughs> and so House to Astonish got repurposed for that. I just love it as a name. You know, I just, it's just a very odd thing. That See, I
1: didn't know the amalgam thing. I just figured you'd thrown it together from the various, you know, anthology titles in it. But it does sound like it could easily
0: be an anthology t- Yeah, well, I actually interviewed Mark Wade at, at the Thought Bubble convention about four, four or five years ago now. And told him that he had named my podcast. And he was taken aback slightly. He was like, Did I? I don't remember that. <laughs> but then he was gracious enough to record a bumper for us where he's like, Hi, I'm Mark Wade, writer of Daredevil. <laughs> and you're listening to How to so Astonish, the podcast that I named. Which was kind
1: of him. One, that's a very good Mark Wade. <laughs> and two, Mark Wade does sound like that bit at the end of an Audible podcast where again <laughs> it's been recycled and stepped on so many times. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's has been an honorable recording.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's what I do. And House to Astonish is just at the time of recording, it's five days away from turning ten years old. Like our
1: Yeah Yeah, our
0: tenth anniversary episode will be out in the next couple of weeks you can get that at HouseToAstonish.com house is the blog there. And you can find me and my co-podcaster, Paul O'Brien, who people may know from the the fact that he's been reviewing X-Men comics on the internet since literally the mid-90s. Doing a thing called the X-Axis, which he's done, or he started on Usenet and then got his own site and so on. And his main outlet for that has been on com for the past you know, nine or ten years. And uh, he also there reviews, like, British chart singles and...
1: (laughs) Because reasons.
0: Sometimes British children's television. (laughs) Also because reasons. Yeah, it's an eclectic smorgasbord. So, yeah, so that's me and that's what I do. (laughs) We talked a little bit in the pre-show
1: about podcasts that, you know, exist in Potentia. And I still say I could do a song by song Wiggles podcast with David James Young, one of my former guests, where we just talk about whether or not a Wiggles song slaps. And the answer is surprisingly yes for most of them. Excellent. Hey, I got to say, brush your pet's hair is a banger. I will go on record. So I first bumped into House to Astonish through your oh God. It was it's, 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 it's Skype SkyUp. I, I never know how to say it. There you go.
0: Secret conversions on Infinite Podcasts, which was a nine podcast crossover. I think at the time it was the biggest such thing that had ever been done. Some people say, "Oh, you know, we've done we did a twenty four hour podcast where we had guests from ten different podcasts on it. Like that's not a crossover. That's just a podcast having guests on." What well, we we had. You know, we had a plot and everything. <laughs> we had a plot where we all got taken off to Battle Pod by the Beyonder, who was, was voiced great. by Greg Rucker. It was very good. Uh, Greg Rucker has the most amazing voice I've ever heard. And then he voiced the Beyonder for us. And so it was nine podcasts, uh, comic book podcasts, or sort of comics-adjacent podcasts, because one or two which were not specifically comics-related, but which do also cover comics. That was 2015, I think. And we had... You know, each podcast hosted an episode in which people from the other podcasts in the series guested to have a roundtable discussion about a particular topic. And some of them were things like, you know, what are the comics characters that we identify with? Or what are the comics that we we share with people? What do we lend out? And some of them were things like, who would win in a fight? <laughs> My favourite one was on the Silence podcast, where the topic was just, are things better or worse? <laughs> it's a big swing there for a topic. <laughs> Yeah, quite a few people kind of came to us through that. But we you know we also heard from some of our listeners who were introduced to podcasts that you know are, are certainly bigger than House to Astonish. You know, Jay and Miles and things like that, explain the X-Men, War Rocket, Ajax, um, podcasts like that, where people were saying, oh, I've now gotten into the, these other podcasts because I found out about them and I wouldn't have found out about them if it hadn't been for House to Astonish. And it's like, well, it always kind of slightly baffles me and it interests me that there are podcasts where if you listen to one of them, you would almost certainly enjoy the others, but people don't know about the others. And that was kind of one of the reasons why we did Scope in the first place, was to kind of, it was a sort of cross-pollination thing. It's the same reason why comics do crossovers, really. It's, it's to boost sales on books. But it, it always does fascinate me that, you know, somebody could been motoring along quite happily listening to House to Astonish, but not know about, for example, Wait What, which is a very similar show.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things where you know you've got that Venn diagram of things you listen to and then things that are similar, and occasionally you get like the two lips of the circle who will cross over. And yeah, it's that great jumping off point. I mean, I talked to Chris Rowling a couple of episodes ago about crossovers, and you know, when you've got your Guardians of the Galaxy turning up in a Defenders annual, or you know, hijacking a story to introduce Vance Axtrovic. It's like, yeah, that's to push the Guardians of the Galaxy book and say, look at this cool new thing. And when it's done well, it's honestly one of those beautiful things where it's just like oh yeah i'm just gonna step over. oh what they've got 200 episodes in the can well i guess i'm starting over from scratch
0: you know yeah it's weird because we still get people like I go back and look at our downloads we still get people downloading episodes of ours from seven or eight years ago and it's like you, you do know that the vast majority of our podcast is news and reviews <laughs> like you're not gonna get a lot i mean it's a time capsule essentially <laughs>
1: It was funny because I, I mentioned it previously, I went to see Tom Lank, who is an actor and
0: comedian uh, who came to Sydney. Yes, I, I went to see him at the Edinburgh Fringe a few years ago, in fact, when he did his Nerdgasm show. Oh, there you go. He was very, very, very funny.
1: Yeah, he's very funny. And I remember talking to him at one point, like, he took questions and I said, oh, I remember seeing you guest on one of your friends kind of video podcast. and It was a movie review. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really cool. Are you going to do more of that? And he's like, oh, I don't know, you know, the, the, the host has had a baby now, and I don't know if she has the time. And so any of you can go and check that out if you wanted to see, you know, what we thought of the first Thor movie when it came out or something. And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, that is the problem with, you know, having your show be current is that it's current and it's like relevant for about 20 minutes. Yeah, Totally. All right, well, we are not here to talk about comics or podcasts. We are here to talk about Discworld. So what was your first experience with Discworld?
0: My first experience with Discworld is weird. Like I know a lot of people, if you get recommended into Discworld, then people will often recommend you start with either Mort or Guards Guards or Weird Sisters.
1: Those were my first three.
0: (laughs) Well, they are three excellent jumping on points, but my difficulty was that I can't remember how I even heard about Terry Pratchett for the first time, but the first Discworld novel I ever read was Eric, which, to put that in context, yeah, exactly. It's like having your first Pavement album be Wowie zowie You know, it's just... (laughs) No one comes in through Eric. You know, Eric is a... it, It was not a proper novel. It was, you know, it's a novella, essentially. It was designed to be a vehicle for Josh Kirby to illustrate and it's a very simple, you know, it's a parody of Dante's Inferno starring the wizard Rincewind as he goes through various hells and other dimensions.
1: Yeah, it's, it's all set up like Faust and it's like, oh, Eric is, mm. is Faust calling him the
0: devil yes. and yes, it, yes, yes.
1: it just all goes very poorly for him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of those different influences all get thrown into this one book. And it's this kind of picaresque kind of thing. So that, you know, Josh Kirby's got a lot of different stuff to draw. But it's, it's really weird because it's one of the few that is really beholden to the specific details of continuity of an earlier book. If you're coming into Eric without having first read Sorcery, which is probably, to be honest, Sorcery is probably one of the weakest of the Discworld novels. It's a very thin book in terms of its plotting. I mean, I still love it, but... <laughs> you know. well, it
1: does have that brilliant moment where... Rincewind decides to take on these Lovecraftian creatures from Dungeon Dimensions with a half brick and a sock, which I yeah. repeatedly bring back as one of the most Harry Pratchett
0: things. Totally. And it's the, the fact that that's how he wins. The, like he's It's him versus this incredibly powerful wizard, like this source of magic. And the only reason why he wins is because he comes at him with a half brick and a sock rather than trying to do magic against him. And this tickles the the sorcerer so much, amuses him so much that it kind of gets through to his, the fact that he's a child, and it allows him to break free of the, the sort of the malign influence of the the wizard who's passed on his staff and it's it's really it's, a, it's an odd one because it leaves Rincewind, the the main character in a uh, kind of cliffhanger situation, and he's trapped in the the dungeon dimensions, which is basically the kind of time before time, Lovecraftian kind of place. The creatures in there are described as, I think, looking like the contents of a fishmonger's sink trap or something <laughs> like that. Uh, and he gets picked up at the beginning of Eric by the main character, by the title character Eric, who's casting a spell to summon a, a demon and accidentally gets Rincewind instead. But if you don't know that, then you're just like, well, what on earth? Where did this come from? It actually then segues back out in terms of needing to know the continuity of Eric to pick up Rincewind at the beginning of interesting times, where he's, you know, hanging around on a desert island. And if you hadn't read Eric, you'd just be like, what on earth is going on here?
1: But what you get, though, is that's the beginning of how every Rincewind book thereafter starts. At the end, he is always punted out by some cosmic circumstance, and he arrives at the next one through, again, a confluence of narrative. You know, he comes off the desert island, and he ends up in the middle of a revolution, and at the end of the revolution, he's transported back, and he ends up in Australia, so he ends up at the beginning of The Last Continent, and at the end of The Last Absolutely. Continent, he's back in north pork, so it's like, it resets Rincewind from the, you know, sort of cosmic fool that he was in the first few, into this sort of... Uh, Bouncing around Almost Hoovy And landing in the right place At the right time Even though he desperately Does not want to (laughs)
0: Yeah He's almost like The opposite of Doctor Who In that You know he, He ends up in all these places And ends up saving the day Sometimes accidentally Sometimes against his will But he would really rather be doing anything else. It's like what Douglas Adams said about Ford Prefect, which was that Prefect was written specifically to be a reaction against Doctor Who, whereby, you know, if Doctor Who hears screaming happening, then Doctor Who will run towards the screaming, whereas Ford will wander off and look for a party. (laughs) And usually find one. <laughs> you will want nothing to do with it. Exactly.
1: Yeah. That that sounds extremely complicated. And you know what? It's probably a hassle. It is happy hour somewhere.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so the the, the first one I, I read was Eric. And it's a sort of a complicated and difficult relationship which I've got with how I got into Disco because the person who got me into it was my uncle, who is no longer a uh, part of the family, and that's not because he died. And I, I have very complicated feelings towards it because of that, that, you know, he he was, you know, we, we just, nobody sees him anymore. He's not part of the family. No one ever wants to see him again, basically. Sure. Um, for reasons that we won't go into, but he, he was a, a, a huge nerd, and... I borrowed loads of Discworld novels off him. Eric being the first one of those. And I remember asking him, can I read Good Omens? And he said, do you know who Alistair Crowley was? And I said, no. <laughs> and, and, and he said, until you do, I wouldn't. <laughs> but yeah, so it was, it's interesting and it's a strange one. It meant that I, I had to start reading the Discworld novels... Kind of partly as they came out, but also partly filling in the back catalogue. But bear in mind as well that, you know, I started reading them in 91 or 92. So back then, you know, it was at the point where they were only up to about Small Gods, which is abroad, Lords and Ladies, that kind of time. I think think Lords and Ladies might have been 94. And so there wasn't actually a huge back catalogue to get caught up on. Like, I can't imagine if I'd tried to start reading the Discworld novels in, like... You know 2008 or something like that <laughs> And you know there's 38 of them or something that i need to deal with i don't know how i would have got on with that but certainly the first few years for me was a combination of getting stuff out of the library as it came out so that's how i read you know i, I read small gods and witches abroad and lords and ladies all in first edition hardbacks from the library the first one I ever bought with my own money was Men at Arms, when it came out in hardback in 95. Oh. That was an amazing Christmas, I remember, because I got that, and I got The Streets of Ain't More Pork, which came out that Christmas as well, and I got The Discworld Companion, the first edition of which came out that year. Ah. So that was an incredible Christmas. It was just like <laughs> Discworld-a-go-go. And I got into, like I really got into, it. like I love the Discworld books, I love Terry Pratchett's writing. And I was even doing things like, I remember I went to, my dad took us to London for his 40th birthday when I was 14, and my birthday is two days after my dad's birthday, so we were in London at the time of my birthday as well. And we went to a shop in Covent Garden which sold models made by a company called Clearcraft, who did these they're ornaments essentially these beautiful models of disc characters and there's one that had just come out like literally about a week before i i got my birthday money and it was the patrician sitting in his chair and it was like 40 pounds i was like okay i would like to buy this because i've already got you know i've got the librarian i've got the luggage i've got detritus i've got granny weatherwax i've got a few others i want to get this one of the Patrician, and my parents were like, "Are you sure it's really expensive? It's like forty pounds." And I was like, yeah. "Yes, I want to spend all my money on this." So I got it. And about five years later, I realised reading online that there was the version that I had was not the version that everyone else seemed to have. Uh-huh. Like the version that everyone else seemed to have had a uh, a cloak draped over the back of the Patrician's chair, and. The reason for this was that apparently the mould was very flimsy for the original version, and was prone to breaking. And so they needed to add the cloak to kind of fill in a gap at the back of this chair that Patricia was sat in. And that meant that the version I had was a essentially first run aberration. (laughs) And I sold it on eBay for two hundred (laughs) and fifty pounds. Jesus, yeah, pretty good. They then also sold the first 21 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man on eBay for (laughs) £140. The early 2000s were wild, man. People were buying all sorts of stuff.
1: It's true, yeah. It was the eBay boom. Mm -hmm. Although I say that with the touch of bitterness as someone who reduced massively his comics and books and all sorts of things when we moved into this house and eventually I ended up taking all of my Ultimate Comics trade paperbacks to a second hand bookstore and getting something to the effect of $1.50 each <laughs> because I was just like this is too big and no one wants the first 20
0: trades of Ultimate Spider-Man despite me what I-, I literally just gave the first 21 trades of Ultimate Spider-Man to my friends some <laughs> There you go. And there I you. really hope he enjoys it because they were just taking up a lot of space. I've got Marvel Unlimited. I don't need 21 trade paperbacks of Ultimate Spider-Man. I was never going to crack the physical books open ever again. Um, so, and then a, a couple of years... Sorry, just to get back to my... I was going to say, I don't want to track. give you a blow-by-blow blow of when I bought every single individual Discworld novel. <laughs> but... I got the next cut, I got Soul Music and and Interesting Times in paperback when they came out, but I started buying them in hardback as soon as they were released with the release of Masquerade, and that's how I bought them from then on. Like every single Discworld novel, I bought day of release in a brick-and-mortar shop for, you know, however much money it was and then just read it as fast as I possibly could because I just devoured Discworld novels. My folks always joked that they just wouldn't see me for two days. And I would <laughs> they would go into my room and I'd be sitting... The way I would sit when I was reading something was I would sit on the floor with my back against the radiator and just read solidly for two days or whatever. And there was a shop in Glasgow uh, where I, I went to school, which was a kind of outlet bookstore and mostly it was kind of remaindered stuff but they also had new books it's a a chain called The Works which they have here in the UK they always used to break the like the on sale date so I knew that if if I went to this one branch of The Works on Socky Hall Street in Glasgow (laughs) I could get the new Discworld novel one or two days before it officially came out anywhere else (laughs) so that was where I would always I I would always get them there And so, yeah, I just pretty much bought every single one of them from then on. You know, I've got three different editions of the Discworld Companion Hmm. now.
1: Well, that's the thing, they keep revising it.
0: Yeah, well, the the final one they did that they called Turtle Recall, which came out in 2012, I think. So there wasn't a lot after that, obviously. You know, there was only, you know, four books or something like that after that. But to be honest, I have had The Shepherd's Crown, the final Discworld novel, sitting on my bookshelf. Since the day it came out and I have read every chapter in it bar one. Ooh. I can't do it. I just can't finish it. I can't bring myself to to make myself read the end of the last book. Ironically, that's what prompted this
1: series. Mm -hmm. Is that I finally looked at it, I saw it like I was with, with my son at the library in the sort of the kids area where you could play around with all the toys. And I glanced over and on the bottom shelf of the closest shelf to me was P for Pratchett in the young adult section and there it was. And I'm doing the same, I'm actually, I've done about two thirds of it. And eventually had to return the book to the library, but I will take it back. And no spoilers, but uh, chapter two may have physically killed me on the train to work. Oh man, it's brutal. (laughs) And think it's like I was the, the reason Annie Creighton was my first guest is because we have a DM set up just for yelling about books. And <laughs> I was giving her like paragraph by paragraph screaming of specific thing, like doing the equivalent of, you know, when you when you get it, like one of those big cockroaches that are really dumb and they fly inside and they bounce off the walls and you eventually have to spray them because you can't chew them out. And you spray them, and you watch the the poison hit them, and I sort of spin around and go arg 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 and kick and such. That was me reading chapter two, <laughs> where I was just like, "Oh, this is happening! Arg arg! Oh God! Oh God! It's it, this is this is the thing! Oh God! I know it's gonna happen! Oh God!" Yeah, it's hard. It's such a slow play out. To think of it like you're revealing a royal flush in a poker movie. You know, every card is being laid one at a time, and you know where it's going, and it's just being masterfully just set up and with anyone who's read any of the previous books you know it's coming and it's it's still devastating
0: when it lands Mm. to be honest with you like the shepherd's crown for me like Pratchett there has never been a a writer who was more important to me than Terry Pratchett there's never been a writer who more informed my own my own writing and like a lot of my knowledge on stuff (laughs) you know just learning about particularly in terms of learning about folklore and things like that oh, a very lot much of th- so yeah and so for me if i don't finish the book it feels almost like there you know there's still Pratchett out there that i haven't read there's still works to be discovered by him for me and it's just uh eventually one day i will read it but i'm going to need to take a couple of hours where i know that i'm going to be by myself <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's a little bit like, to use a terrible reference, it's Daniel Unlost in season two. He's got the last Charles Dickens book that he's never read and he's saving it for when he'll need it. And right at the end when he thinks he's about to die, he runs over and he grabs the book and he opens it and he waits. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a bit of that,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah, so like, I had I met Pratchett a few times. A couple of times it was just at signings. Terry Pratchett is like I, th- I think people who know stuff about like what he was like know that he wasn't somebody who suffered fools gladly oh absolutely not by which i mean he could be an ordinary cuss <laughs> you know obviously a genius but you know he could be a a grouch and i remember being at a couple of signings where like it was just a brilliant experience he was so awesome and then a couple of times where he was obviously super tired it'd been a really long tour and it was not necessarily the greatest interaction that i've ever had with an author but it's still every single book that he signed for me was a treasure But I remember one time when I worked for, during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, there are a variety of uh, free publications which get put out just during that, and one of them was a a publication, or is still, I guess, a publication called Fest, which was founded by a couple of my friends, and it was mostly staffed by people from the Edinburgh University Student Newspaper. We pretty much all, apart from the people for whom it was literally the full-time job, we pretty much all did it for free. I think only about two people drew a salary. And they were the people who spent, you know, 100 hours a week working on this thing. And um, I went with a friend of mine to interview Terry Pratchett because there was a musical being done of Only You Can Save Mankind. And, and it was a great musical. But we were one of only two publications that he gave an interview to. Because he was in, he was in a bit of a huff with the papers at the time. I can't remember why, but one of them was because it was because we were essentially uh, pull ourselves up by bootstraps. We are students. We want to. We are putting out a paper, and none of us are getting paid to do it. And we're putting out three editions a week oh of, a, of a twenty-four page paper. And so he had us come in and, and interviewed him, and it was wonderful. Like, he was in such great mood. He particularly... <laughs> I think he must get journalists asking him to sign books for them quite a bit. God, I say yeah. I talk about him in the present tense. We turned up with a copy of our newspaper that we had signed and dedicated to him. <laughs> and he laughed his ass off at that. He thought that was brilliant. Bless. <laughs> but it was good to be able to do things like... You know, he was talking about how he'd gone to see a production of a play of, I think it was Mort, in Poland. And they had made some changes and kind of put in some local humour and stuff. And one of the things they'd done was they'd done a miniature dance routine of death with, like, a kind of a straw boater and cane. And Pratchett couldn't remember the song. And he was like, oh, what's that song? It that goes... that's Honey Pies by the Beatles. And he was like, yes, yes, thank you so much. That's been bugging me for weeks. And I was like, oh, that's, that's good. I'm really pleased to be able to do that for you. <laughs> it was really annoying. Like, I tried to get an interview with him for the student paper back in 99 and got really got the runaround from the PRs at I think it was at Victor Gollanks at that point. By the time eventually I got through to anyone, they were like, oh no, he's back writing again, he's not doing interviews anymore. It's like, well, come on guys, you were trying I was waiting for a return call. I was chasing, blah blah. I then left student paper for a year to go off and study in France and when I was away, somebody actually managed to get the interview. Ah son of a (laughs) <laughs> yeah, particularly given that when I read the interview, they clearly had never read a Pratchett novel. They knew no. barely anything. They kept oh. saying things to him that were just wrong, like they kept calling death Mort. Oh no! And Pratchett was justifiably really hacked off with them. It's, it's like you would expect if anyone's going to have read my books, it would have been students, but apparently not. Aren't these students anyway? I was raging! <laughs> I was like, the interview I would have done. Oh. <laughs> ah! Anyway, so that's a kind of a potted <laughs> tour and history of my run-through. Like, you know, I wrote to Pratchett at one point, sent him a story that I'd written, which got published in one of the Scottish broadsheet papers. Just a short story. It was only like, you know, 1,500 words or something like that. And he wrote back, and he would, the, the main thing was that he was aghast at the fact that I hadn't been paid for it <gasps> oh he was like you know otherwise what price literacy it was his brilliant phrase and he then went on to go through <laughs> everything I could think of at the same time he then gave me some tips for a bit on the Discworld Point and click computer game that I was stuck at <laughs> So, um...
1: <laughs> oh this is just a perfect encapsulation I love it <laughs> So yeah, that's me in the Discworld. Wow, okay. So we've ranged far and wide throughout this conversation, but the reason we'd wanted to come together was I had floated a lot of the topics of sort of the four main threads through Discworld, and you'd put your hand up that you wanted to speak specifically about the Death series. So that would be Mort, Soul Music, Hogfather... I suppose, Thief of Time a little bit. Yeah. But also death throughout the books and how it's approached. So you mentioned that you were devouring them as they went. Was there something specific that stuck out about both about the character of death or even just Mort, the first book that got your attention?
0: Mort, I didn't read until relatively late on. I kind of worked my way through the books that had already been published in whatever order they came into the library. So I like I read Reaper Man before I read Mort, for example. Okay. I think The Color of Magic was one of the last ones I read. Probably for the best. Well, the difficulty with The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic is that unlike all of the other Discworld books, they are specific parodies.
1: You've got Faffer and the Grey Mouser at the beginning.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, it's it basically... Colour of Magic is Fritz Lieber's Lankmar. It's... What's part two? It's... And McCaffrey. Uh, yeah, and McCaffrey's part three. Part two is Lovecraft, and part four is Greg Bear, I think. Then, like, Fantastic is mainly kind of Conan and other low-fantasy kind of swords and sandals kind of stuff mixed in with specific bits from other things, and, and he tries to bring in a proper plot for it because Colour of Magic does not have a plot color magic is just a parody like fantastic you can see him go well if i'm going to do this then i'm going to do a parody but i'm going to add a plot to it and then by the time he gets on to equal rights equal rights is really weird because equal rights is like you can see him taking the stabilizers off the bike and he kind of wobbles and the characters in equal rights are not the characters that they become obviously i mean this is something that you were talking about on your previous episode about the fact that you know the granny weatherwax equal rights it's clearly Granny, but she's clearly like the alpha version of Granny.
1: Yeah, and the same with Esk being like almost a proto-Tiffany Aking.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I have to say one of my favorite moments in any Discworld novel of the past, you know, 10 years was Esk turning up again in... Which one is it in? it's in the, I think it's in the third Tiffany Aking book, Esk turns up. Yeah, it's I Shall Wear Midnight, yeah. Yeah. So I got into the the Death books just as I got into any of them. But Death was an easy character to latch on to because he's in all but one of the Discworld novels. So whenever he turns up, it's like, you know, Norm walking into the bar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm just imagining everybody sitting around going, Death! And in comes Death and the, the audience claps. And he gets
1: some of the best sort of end of paragraph punchlines of anything in the series, like to the point of his ar- <laughs> yes. arrival can be a punchline. Like you can have like, you know, some wicked character have a whole setup, couple of paragraphs and then it gets to the end and you see those small caps appear. And like you said, it's like, no, we know what just happened to you. <laughs> like the, I think it's, I forget which one of the wizard books it is where there's one of the wizards has decided to create this incredibly Powerful box, you know, to ward off death. And he's inscribed these magical runes on the outside, as well as made this incredibly, like, lockpick proof <laughs> mechanism and air box. And he gets in and he'd forgotten to leave an air hole. And then <laughs> you just see death's small caps appear, and it's like, kind of tight in here, isn't it? And, <laughs> and it's, oh, it's, again, it's just all that build up and then the little punch at the end, and then it moves on to something else. It's brilliant.
0: There's so many bits where death is not the enemy in the Discworld Novels, which I think is really, really important, not just to understanding the character, but to also understanding a lot of how Terry Pratchett thinks or thought about things, and a lot of how the Discworld Novels ethos approaches morality and how one should go about living one's life. It's like you get... You know, it's the Neil Gaiman thing, you get a lifetime. And death coming in is... Pratchett knows well you can you can see this in reading the books Pratchett knows well that there are times that death coming in is somebody coming in as a friend and the release of death is a mercy and death himself is a gent- really gentle character. I don't know if there is more <laughs> I don't know if this is a phrase that travels but we have a phrase we must, it must travel, I, I'm sure it will be in Australia as well but somebody is a soft touch yeah definitely death is the ultimate soft touch death is just he's a a lovely chap, and he is so kind and very empathetic he does his job and he won't be stayed from doing his job and almost every problem that crops up in a novel in which he's the main character comes in some way from him not doing his job or someone else not doing his job for him but he's, I mean, people talk about, you know, Carrot's a very kind character, but Carrot has an absolute core of steel. You know, there is, a, there is something, Carrot will bend very far on his own terms, but there is a point at which if you try to bend Carrot, he will not. Death is more malleable. Death is more like a kind of, like a force of nature. You can try to bend and break death. You will not succeed because, you know, it'd be like trying to fight the wind. But occasionally
1: you'll find that death will bend himself.
0: Yeah, and he, death is a kind person. Like there is a bit in Reaper Man, which I don't know to what extent we want to spoil stuff, but there is a character in Reaper Man who dies, and death is very, very kind to them in how he approaches breaking the news of that to them. Oh, it's it's so nice. Like it's
1: in a very nice book. It is an extremely nice moment.
0: Yeah. Like, the fact that, you know, it's a book about... It's about death, we're going to say, and a lot of it is to do with the fact that things need to die. But that doesn't mean that there can be no heart or empathy in it. You know, one of the great threads in Reaper Man... I suppose the general plot of Reaper Man is Death Takes a Holiday, essentially. He goes off and does this kind of High Plains Drifter kind of thing where he, he goes and lives on a farm, calls himself Bill Door, and decides that what he's going to do is spend his autumn taking in the crop. And, you know, he, he will do the harvest when the harvest comes because, he you know, if he knows how to do anything, he knows how to do that. One of the other characters in the book has invented, basically, a combine harvester. And there's a kind of thread about industrialization in there, but it's not really the main thing of it. The main thing of a it is... A little bit of a
1: John Henry tale as well. Yeah, definitely. There's even a moment where Death has to beat the Combine Harvester.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because the Combine Harvester is so efficient, but it's so clinical. And there is no... You know, the Combine Harvester has no empathy and will never give anybody any comfort in their last minutes. You know, whereas Death will because he's kind. I mean, what can the harvest hope for if not the care of the reaper man? Exactly. The the wonderful line from that book. And (laughs) what I love about it is you would expect in any other book that would be like, oh, death obviously is going to beat the Combine Harvester when they have their contest. You'd expect it to be like through sheer force of effort or like the fact that, you know, I am the immortal force of death. No, it's because he goes out the night before and breaks a bit off the Combine Harvester. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Because he's, you know, He's a soft touch, but he's not an idiot. <laughs> yeah, and
1: some part of the thing of Reaper Man is that without death there, you get these ripples. And part of the ripples is uh, leftover life force that is not taken away and that's dealt with by the wizards through this great life cycle of paperclip to wire hanger to shopping trolley to shopping mall, which is a you know a, just a wonderful little
0: thing in itself. Yeah. The whole thing about it, that's how we, where we get shopping while wrong and so on. But I think, I mean, the paperclips to Coat Hangers thing comes from another, mm, yes. it's, I think it's Avram Davidson short story. I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically it's got the same life cycle in it. But, but that's really interesting because you've got, I mean, they're two totally disconnected plot lines. The only thing that they have in common is that one causes the other to happen. The fact that death disappears stops collecting souls the life force starts washing up in it washes up in the b plot but because they're both i say b plot they're, it's not a b plot it's a second a plot and to, to address that we literally print the two stories in different fonts <laughs> within the same book yeah. but it's great because it means that you have this very tender very quiet story of death on the farm and you get characters introduced. I mean, we'll come on, I'm sure, to talk about some of the other characters, the supporting cast of Death soon. But, you know, the death of rats appears for the first time in Reaper Man.
1: Yes, that's where I was going with that. Because death is death for everyone, from flatworms under the ocean to people to rats, cats, anything. But when he leaves. Essentially, everything gets its own death. They refer to the death of mayflies as being a black trout that swims under the water. And then there's the death of rats who goes through a number of permutations before settling on a tiny skeletal rat who says "squeak
0: in small caps, and it's great. <laughs> he's the grim squeaker. where's like <laughs> wears the same robe and cowl and carries the same little scythe. Yeah. the death like just a miniature version of it. Death eventually realizes that you know he's, he, when death comes back because he realises he needs to come back. He reabsorbs all the other deaths, and then he gets to the death of rats, because he realises he feels there's something missing. He kind of looks at death of rats and realises that, actually, you know, one of the reasons why he went off and did the thing that he did, where he quit being death, was that he's really lonely. And so he keeps the death of rats around. As his little buddy. Although I think he also, te- technically, he also keeps the death of fleas Yeah, because it's, t- it's tiny and on it's the death of fleas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: and so, the yeah, the Grim Squeaker goes on to be this sort of mugging side character in, you know, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Squeak. Well, obviously me, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's brilliant, because he gets to be... The, the, one thing is, it comes back to the Doctor Who thing. Doctor Who needs somebody to talk to. Yeah. Otherwise they're just they're just rambling to themselves in a huge empty space. Death needs somebody to talk to. And Death doesn't have companions. You know, we always got, you know, a manservant, but you know, that guy is gonna go off and clean some, you know, grates out or something like that. So he needs somebody to, to chat to. And so The Death of Rats fills that in, and he brilliantly fills it in by... It's that kind of I am Groot kind of thing, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it's, you, you can, Rocket Raccoon can say anything, and then Groot will say, I am Groot, and Rocket says, well, no, obviously we'll not <laughs> cut that bit off. He'll bleed everywhere. It's, a, it's such a beautiful little narrative device. Mm, oh, it's wonderful. But at the same time as that very slow, gentle plotline is happening, which does culminate with quite a dramatic finale (laughs) I love because like there's a new version of every death of every creature and of course one of them is going to be the death of humans and as people are creating this new death of humans from their kind of communal psyches they're creating a much more cold and menacing version of death because that's how people in their kind of quotes modern world see death and it's not the death that we have from the colour magic onwards who is infinitely old. And so he's essentially an evil version of death. And so death knows that he's going to have to try to absorb all the deaths again, but he's gonna have a fight in his hands with this guy. And he doesn't have any power because he's Bill Doerr, a guy who just, you know, cuts down grain and all this kind of thing. And there's a wonderful bit where he's talking to the woman who he's been lodging at the farm of. And, you know, there's thunder and lightning going off and, you know, he sees the New Death silhouetted on his horse against the, the shadows on the top of a hill and he says what time is it and she says oh it's about 25 to midnight and he says then I wager we have about 25 minutes and she says why is that and he says because the kind of person who will stand on top of a hill and be silhouetted by lightning will not arrive at 11.35 (laughs) if they can possibly arrive at midnight
1: and then during the showdown the new death takes back his hood and he's got a crown and the old death is incensed so angry (laughs) He says, I never gave myself a crown. And the new death says, the old, yes, you never meant to rule. And oh, the anger in that moment, because it is, it is not just wrong. It is incorrect. And this cannot stand. Mm. And there's been an entire buildup in this. And because we, we, we're talking about the book, we can say where death has been preparing a new scythe and sharpening it on everything from a cobweb to silk to air to the point where you can cut words which is a beautiful thing because the the typeface becomes slightly unaligned when he cuts a sentence and so it has been carefully prepared and it gets lost and in his moment of anger he grabs the normal working scythe that he has used to cut the grain and his anger gives it an edge and it
0: kills the new death and it's just oh it's beautiful It's such a good moment It's such a good book But at the same time as this is going on There is this parallel plot happening With the Wizards of Antmoor Pork Fighting a shopping centre And it is just Joke, 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 joke joke All the way through Ghostbusters But it's just like It's an extended sequence That's a parody of Aliens Yeah, Aliens too (laughs) Like where it quotes Quotes huge chunks of dialogue from Aliens Yeah, you
1: know It's remember everyone Wild uncontrolled bursts (laughs) Yeah It's so silly. (gasps) Uh, So... I guess we can talk a little bit about the sporting cast, because you're right, and Reaper Man is one of my favorite books, but really, and thinking that it was your first, it's an easy one to be your first. For all, it does have ties to the previous ones. It's easy to be your first because it's that side adventure, you know? You're cutting away to be Bill Bildor at the farm for a while, and have wacky adventures with a small child who sees him as a skeleton instead of the others who see him as a person. But that's okay, because, like when talking to any three-year-old, you can just wait for the next thought to come along, and it will be something like, I've got new socks.
0: Yeah, One of my favourite moments in any of the Discworld novels Is in Hogfather Which we obviously we'll talk about soon But it, it's one of my absolute favourite Discworld novels But it's when Death is being the Hogfather Discworld's version of Santa Claus But he's being a department store version And this child comes up This little snotty child with a huge coat on And Death says to this kid I see your hands are on strings and The child just looks down, looks up and just says gloves <laughs> just, just the fact that it's just it's not even gloves gloves
1: because <laughs> you could just you can imagine that glottal noise as this kid is saying it's beautiful it's up there with the little apostrophe s which is the half swallowed embarrassed child yes <laughs> when you had a fight with your friend and you're made to say you're sorry and touch hands and you, were you wrong in doing this Yes. And sort looking away. It's it's lovely. Again, it's a little gift of tiny things that Terry Pratchett has. Totally. To but let's talk a little bit because what Mort does and I thing is Mort is still a strange book in that it does have some of that early installment weirdness that you get from those say first six or so Terry Pratchett books. You know? There's a bit of the, the old wizardry about it and time shifts and things changing and but then you also get through Mort. Thing is, the whole story of Mort is that death takes an apprentice. And it's this kind of useless, gawky young kid named Mort, who's described as being made of elbows with, like, shocking red hair and just just being terrible at things.
0: His walk is described as being less a walk and more a fall indefinitely postponed.
1: (laughs) Which I've met people like that. Which I love. Love it so much. And, of course, because Mort makes a hash of it, he's eventually kicked out. But living with death has changed him. And so when he marries death's adopted daughter he then has they have to have children and that child is susan and susan goes on to be one of the best
0: characters in the series the entire series totally it's interesting because we look at how many death novels there are so i mean suppose technically there's like five i guess you'd say there's more reaper man soul music hogfather and thief of time and death is only the main character in two and a half of those books you know the other two and a half susan is the main character I mean, technically, um, Hogfather is also about death, but I don't think there's a... You know, Susan is definitely the protagonist of Hogfather. And, you know, she pitches up as first in Soul Music, and then she turns up again as the lead character in Thief of Time. And she's... Like, she's such a good character that she's able to kind of fill in the kind of... The hero role. That I, I know that Pratchett hated the concept of heroes, but she is that, she's got that kind of Granny Weatherwax thing of I'm the one who's going to roll up their sleeves and get stuff done here.
1: Yeah, because being essentially the granddaughter of death has given her an ability to ignore illusions. And that includes things like, you know, the little lies that people tell themselves on a day-to-day basis to get by. And as such, as she gets older, the less patience she has for things. Although, again, there is sort of a dedication in Susan at the sort of the studied ordinary. You know, I am going to be a teacher and I'm going to be a teacher just as hard as I can.
0: Yeah, I think Pratchett's got, he's got two sides to how he approaches that kind of thing because he has a lot of time and a lot of empathy, I think, for people who want to reinvent themselves. And we see that in characters like the coven in *Lords and Ladies*, oh
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> where you know some of them are some of them are idiots. You know, Lucy Talkley is an idiot, but you know Agnes is very sensible. But she also wants to reinvent herself. You know. Apparently, he chose the name Susan because there's a lot of people who, when they go to a different school or go to go on to you know tertiary education, like to change their way that they say their name. So, you know, a lot, a lot of girls who were Vicky become Tory. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and Susan
1: becomes Susie or Susie spelled like Susie in the Banshees.
0: Susan was. It can become a ton, yeah. It can it can become a ton of different names. And he picked that because it was that and Nicola were the two that had sort of the most different permutations of the way you could reinvent your name. And so when he was coming up with a character who was going to be somebody who was taken from a kind of ordinary world back into the world that they came from originally, he wanted something that was a very ordinary name, but that was the kind of name that somebody could, if they wanted to, reinvent themselves down the line, but what comes out of that for me, I think, as well, is that there's almost a kind of an inverse to it, which is that for Susan, you can't escape, you can't change who you are. You are the granddaughter of death, and doesn't matter how often you shout at the cupboards, the death of rats is still in there, <laughs> eating your chocolates. Yeah, trying to get you to come and do stuff for him. And so there's there's an extent to which I think Pratchett's got it's got a bunch of recurring themes. So one of them is. You can reinvent yourself if you want to You are your own person And another is Sometimes you just have to do the things That you have to do And where those clash together You get a character like Susan I think that's really fascinating And it makes for a really excellent character That you can put into some terrific situations It also makes for somebody who is perennially Kind of hacked off with stuff. Oh, extremely annoyed.
1: And because she's just trying to be a teacher. She's living her normal life. And all of this stuff keeps happening. Absolutely. And and she's going to have to deal with it. And it's funny because you talk about the comparison and the switch to Susan as the protagonist. It's because death by his nature is unchanging. Even though there yeah. are gradations of death and there are small changes. Like when Susan was a child, she visited the house and the house suddenly had a bathroom, even though death didn't go to the bathroom. And the towels were like as stiff as stone, but they look like towels because a bathroom needs to have towels and a house needs to have a bathroom. And so this kind of, well, because way of inventing things, it's again, this is death attempting to fit the mold and he's still death. They have a hog watch dinner. And he sits around going, is this jolly throughout the entire thing? Cause he doesn't understand, but he's trying. And in that you find he works better as a secondary character. He is off, you know, being the hog father, like Jack Skellington, again, making a bit of a hash of it while Susan is on the ground,
0: actually solving the mystery of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of, each of his stories kind of teaches him something. I mean, for more... Like, he takes an apprentice because he's heard that people take apprentices. <laughs> and so that's the only reason why he does it. And Mort doesn't work out, and then Mort leaves. And I kind of think that's why in Reaper Man he goes off and does what he does, because he's lonely. Like, having Mort changed death in that it, it changed not the function, but it changed the personality of death Because, I mean, Albert being there was great for Death, but Albert is there forever. Albert, Death's manservant, is there forever. And so Death losing somebody from his immediate orbit kind of makes Death go, well, actually, now I'm lonely. And that kind of prompts Reaper Man. And then after Reaper Man, at the beginning of Soul Music, where, spoilers, Susan's parents die... At the very, very beginning of soul music, and that's the first time Death has ever experienced death, as far as I can tell. For anyone that he loves, because Albert is functionally immortal while well, he stays in Death Domain, because his lifetime is paused. He's got a
1: few days, and he like nips back to get supplies every now and again, but is basically there.
0: You know, Albert finds Death sitting around questioning what the, what's it all about when it gets right down to it, and that's why he leaves again i mean it's on the surface it's the same plot twice you know death leaves the role of being death but he does it for totally different reasons but then there's only so far you can go in changing death because but until he just becomes a different character so once you've taught death about loss and then also you teach death about how it is to experience the death of a loved one there's not masses more that i think pratchett thought yo, know, i can do tons more stuff with what else can i teach death and i think he probably was also wary about wanting to change death much more because death is constant mm-hmm. and death should just be death forever and so coming in with a character like susan yeah, he's talked a little bit about you know there are certain characters who if left to their
1: own devices would take over the story and that's the patrician and that's the librarian and that's death
0: totally agree he has i remember reading an interview where he was talking about granny weatherwax and how difficult it was to write for granny weatherwax how he felt that even by the time i think it was after lords and ladies in fact he said that he already felt that writing for granny was becoming harder and harder because she was bigger and bigger and essentially more powerful Mm -hmm. in every book trying to find a way to make granny not be infallible is difficult
1: And you can see that in some of the books like Carpe Jugulum where Granny is absent for a lot of the plot and you end up with Agnes and Nanny and Megrat dealing with the vampires. Yeah, totally. But actually, it's funny. It's like, as you were saying that, like I was... For a moment, I struggled and I forgot the name of Death's daughter, which is Isabel, who's Susan's mother. And like the idea that he had taken Isabel when she was a baby because her parents had died in the desert. And in looking up the name, because I realized, because she's only in Mort, really. And then in soul music, her and Mort are killed off page and we get to see both death and Susan reacting to it and the fact that death did not save them. But Isabel actually says that she was saved, but he didn't feel sorry for me. He never felt anything. He probably thought sorry for me, which is sort of the seeds of what you see with death in Reaper Man. It's sort of the beginnings of that change that comes along, where he starts to try things. But again, he is still death. So, you know, when he creates the stone towels in the bathroom, they're all black
0: because that's death. Yeah, when he creates a swing for Susan in the garden and he ties it to two branches of a tree, he forgets that you can't just tie them to branches on opposite sides of the tree and cut out the middle of the tree. (laughs) But he does it anyway.
1: (laughs) And with Susan, again, with, with that sort of, like, clinging to normalcy, again, you get someone who is about making things correct but again like a little bit with agnes that that job sucks you don't ever want that job you know you can be good at it like you said you always come back to what it is that you do but it's not fun it's not enjoyable you know to have to when the entire city is frozen by a a magical clock that is hit by lightning which is the plot of thief of time and she's there and she looks around she basically reacts to it the way you would if you're tying your shoe and your lace breaks you know, it's ugh. Oh, this is annoying, but it's something that that <sighs> may happen at any time.
0: Yeah, and she's Thief of Time is one of the most sort of, of that period of Discord novels. I think there were a few. There was that, and there was also The Truth as well, where they felt to me like they're great, but they feel like they're fitting into almost like a a more a more traditional mold of story. I think something like Reaper Man is quite unpredictable. Yes for the truth and Thief of Time, it's more to do with I think probably from about feet of clay onwards to probably about I think amazing Maurice breaks them out of it. but there's a type of almost like a graph you could plot of like the ups and downs of the plot of the the book. And you know, there's some of my favorite books. I mean the fact that you know, feet of clay. He sets out to do uh, you know a whodunit mystery and decides <laughs> you know Pratchet being Pratchett that's far too easy. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tell you who did it on about page 30 and then the rest of the book is going to be a how done it <laughs> which is just wonderful. But Thief of Time feels like a, a relatively straightforward adventure story, I think. Certainly, it's it's not got the same stuff for Susan in it, I think, that Soul Music has got. But what it does mean is that you get to have proper out-and-out villains. So the auditors of reality who were bad guys in Reaper Man, who are these kind of, literally, they're empty suits. They're just grey cloaks that speak in monotone and just want everything to be totally banal.
1: Yeah, they want atoms to spin and planets to orbit. And all of this life stuff is so complicated and they hate it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that they like she manages to beat them by basically not being a predictable, you know, an orbiting atom is great. And you know, like her versus the auditors is a superb plot line. Mm-hmm. And you get you know, there's other great characters and I think Jeremy's a great character. I think just like the, the book in general, I mean Lud and Luce are terrific characters. Yeah, Lutse is one of my favorites. L- Lutze is a fantastic character. Oh, he's so good. He's just this shitty little man, but he's amazing. You could do an entire episode of this this series of podcasts just about like the minor recurring characters and just have somebody on to talk about Lutze and Dibbler and all oh, these God. kinds of guys. The, the patrician and the, you know... The librarian. All these. Yeah, exactly. All the ones that could take over the story.
1: But the idea of the auditors are destroyed every time they have an individual thought. So there'll be like eight of them having a conversation. And if anything, any of them uses a singular pronoun, like I, they will immediately immolate and be replaced by another empty suit. (laughs) Because individuality is their nemesis. And so they go into an art museum after they take over and they end up taking the art apart into its component paint particles to try and identify what it is that makes it art. And they are ruined by logic puzzles, like, look out for yeah. the elephant, and there's no elephant. Or, keep left, but the arrow points to the right. It's, yeah. It's like, these are stupid jokes, but they are excellent jokes, because they look at it, and they, they get angry about the paradox, and end up just imploding into themselves. Yeah. And with the sort of nuclear option against them is chocolate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it makes people feel when they eat it.
1: <laughs> Yeah, and it's like you throw a soft center into the middle of a room, and it
0: goes off like a grenade. <laughs> It's like in, uh, do you read The Dark Tower, the Stephen King? Uh, I haven't, but I know of it, yes. I've read the first one and not the others. There's a sequence in that where they end up in a kind of a, a deadly riddle battle with a sentient train. And <laughs> it's a sentence you just said. And they win by, the, the they stop trying to do clever, thinky riddles and they just start doing stupid jokes. <laughs> and that's how they beat this again this. a, very, a
1: very Doctor Who a very Doctor Who scenario you've just yeah, described right exactly I will destroy you with this deadly jammy dodger yes quite it's, yeah when is a door not a door
0: when it's a jar but that
1: doesn't make any sense <laughs>
0: But yeah, so the fact that Susan has to kind of take on the reins of being the protagonist Helps to make four more straightforward stories But they're less philosophical stories, I think Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and like you said, they're still good stories I mean, you've got the fifth horseman of the apocalypse Who left before they got famous (laughs) The Pete Best of the four horsemen (laughs) Which beautifully
0: Pratchett discovered by accident (laughs) <laughs> like he called him, he had named the character before he worked out the play on words. I don't want to spoil it because it's a great moment in the book. But the character had been named before he worked out what the fifth horseman was going to be called. And he only realized like that he had managed to set this incredible, beautiful present for himself <laughs> while he was in the middle of writing the book. Again,
1: not going too deep into it, but talk about a character dedicated to normalcy.
0: Hmm. And no, the, the joys
1: thereof. And, you know, you find war in his retirement, standing over the garden watching ants have a little war, yellow ants mm-hmm. versus red ants. And that's what he does in his retirement. I suppose it's the equivalent of, you know, a general making little mock battles or model trains or something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the the one, like the big, well, I suppose we've not really touched so much on soul music yet, but I, like, can I just say as somebody... Who loves puns? Mm-hmm. Soul mm-hmm. music is one of my absolute favorites. It's, it's very, very good. Also, as a big, I'm a huge music nerd, and so the number of references, the fact that he builds for nearly 300 pages to make a joke on a Kirsty McCall song title, is <laughs> just <laughs> glory incarnate. Like, <sighs> like the, like the builds up all the way through of like impeccalian as people think he's elvish and people can say well I think he's a little bit elvish he looks a bit elvish around the ears you know at the start it's, it feels like this is just kind of because elves are hated in, in the disc world it feels like it is trying to make a point about sneaking racial attitudes in music in the 20th century you know particularly how you know it's like mm, are, are you the right type of person mm-hmm. are you just passing enough to be in here with us and no, it, the whole thing is because at the end of the book, imp may or may not be working at the local chip shop near where Susan goes to school, and somebody says there's a boy working down the chip shop. I can swear he's elvish, which is a play on Kirsty McCall's the boy who down the chip shop swears he's Elvis, and like it takes I never almost got the whole book I thought it was just a very simple
1: uh, oh you know, Elvish sounds like Elvis, and so I saw this guy who is like Elvis and. Oh my god!
0: I mean, it is it is that as well, but it, it's really leading up to so he can do this kind of impresario, like this huge, big kind of, and I, I give you my creation kind of joke, you know. Um, but the, the number of bits in soul music that are deliberate references to other, like the amount of references to the Blues Brothers specifically, oh, huge. is hilarious. For the four fried rats and two hard-boiled eggs. <laughs> Which is also although a March Brothers a March, Brothers, March Brothers reference, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Either it's foggy out or we need a dozen hard-boiled eggs. Um, you know, the bit about being on a mission from... And, you know, do you, want, do you want four fried rats? Do you want rat heads or rat legs? No, four fried yes. rats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, although I can't remember, does, off the top of my head, because I don't have the book in front of me, but um, it would make a lot of sense, given that they have a troll with them. If they had said four fried rats and some coke, like as in some coal. Oh, that was really funny. I can't, I if can't, that, can't remember if that's very... in the book. But, oh, is uh... it? Because the thing is, because Cliff, the uh, the drummer, yeah, is yeah. a
1: troll, and so would eat coke, and so it's just yeah. like I can't. Yeah, you know, and everything. Like I've I've just pulled open because I wanted to get the quote right, but I have pulled open the Space page for it, and there's so much. It's stuff like you know Miss Butts practicing eurythmics at the gym and it's like in any other book you would not have noticed that except for the fact that it's a book
0: about rock and roll <laughs> Yeah. oh it's so good you know the, the pun about I can't remember the name of him but it's the, the dwarf monk who stole a trumpet and he makes a joke about him being a felonious monk and yes. I'm like oh man that's a take the rest of the day off kind of <laughs> joke that one
1: oh, I, like literally I had just scrolled to that and it was next to Cavern Deep and Mountain High <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the band called Insanity instead of Madness. It... <laughs> and I said it in the last uh, one, but it it's... is still it is still one of my favorites. When they said, Well, what's the name of your band? And it's like, well, we're certainly dwarfs. Because <laughs> they might be giants. <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> but it's so amazing.
0: So 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 good. But yeah, so I mean soul music is one of my favourites because it is one of the ones that builds to the most kind of apocalyptic crescendo like there's a lot at stake at the end of Soul Music like literally the whole world but it's also got a lot of very kind of sweet small moments that the fact that Imp who is kind of the co lead with Susan is this kind of he seems quite content to just let himself be buffeted by whatever people other want to do. So long as he gets to play his music, he's quite happy to just go along with stuff. And because of that, he gets pushed into a role which is essentially a kind of apocalypse bringing role. But the bit where they go to buy instruments and they go to a kind of magic pawn shop
1: the shop that wasn't there the
0: day before but has always been there once it arrives exactly and it has got everything in it has got a tag with a number on it and this guitar which he buys and he says that it doesn't have a number on it it's just got a single stroke on a tag and it's like yeah that's because you know it's mr burns's phone number it's it's the first thing that was ever pawned in this shop
1: and of course, and the, again, it's an extended play on the fact that at some point in any musician's life, yes. he'll hit a hard point and he'll have to sell yeah. his, his instrument. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or pawn it and get it back. And the idea of the villain of the musician's guild is, is essentially an accountant. Mm-hmm. because Musicians are terrible with money. <laughs> and he, get, he gets into the guild by playing a comb and paper, which is the most, <laughs> it's
0: so dumb. Is such a good, such a good story, and the fact that it's got like bit, bits where the dean of unseen university trying to put a message in rhinestones on the back of his leather jacket and it ends up with it saying "Live fats, die yo gnu." <laughs> it's just- because <laughs> it's turned around so he's putting them on. It's just brilliant. I love it. I love it so much. so funny. And see, I'm just scrolling
1: through. There's so many more puns. There's dwarfs with attitude. You know, you can say it'll it'll go down like a lead balloon, a.k.a. a lead zeppelin. Or, you know, they brought a leopard, but it's sort of deaf. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, the surreptitious fabric, a.k.a. the velvet underground.
0: Yeah, in in fairness, some of these are... These are music hall kind of level stuff. This is Pratchett getting away with the fact that, you know, the rest of what's going on in the book is incredibly impressive, so he can put in a lot of very silly stuff as well. Mm -hmm. You know, some kind of real groaners. But it's just... As as a book, it holds together so well. You get... Death obviously has a key role to play in it because Death decides he doesn't know what the point of anything is because he's seen his daughter and son-in-law die. And, and he couldn't do anything about it or chose not to do anything about it. he does he does say to Susan later on, yes, I could have I could have stopped it,
1: but it's that dr. Manhattan thing where it's like you know I've seen it and it happens, so therefore it has to happen yeah. and it's it's that sort of causality loop. It's a fixed point in time
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely at the same time you've got Susan and her plot with the death of rats essentially as like her guide. As she tries to stop this disaster from happening, oh, you know, she, somebody has to come and fill in for him because it all went a bit pear shaped last time. Remember, no one came and filled in for him, so she is getting dragged into the family business. But she also kind of has to deal with what's going on with Imp and the the band with rocks in this music, this power of this music that's coming through, and these different plot lines. They all. They hang together so well and they build into such a great crescendo, no pun intended, that it's incredibly satisfying as a book to read. Like I think in terms of Pratchett's absolute pinnacle of the very, very best stuff he ever did, I think it probably, there are two phases for me. One starts at Witches Abroad and finishes at Masquerade. And the other is around the time of Amazing Maurice, Watch, Going Postal. Things like that. Which I think are all just incredible. I mean, they're all good. Some There are a couple of... little Snuff is not great. Um, Raising Steam is a very enjoyable book because it has a reference to, as far as I can tell, literally every single other Discworld novel in it. Even you know, the fact that, you know, the Steam engine... In raising steam is created by the son of the farmer character who creates the combine harvester and man
1: Hey, the the low king comes back. Everyone drops in.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: And actually, I come to think of it, as I say that, you know why? It's because the minute you've got a railroad, the world becomes a little bit smaller.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also kind of think he, at that point he knew he was on the way out, and he wanted to just do a tie it in a bow for people but then obviously you know, the shepherd's crown is is also a very personal book i think for him and so you know you've you've, you've done raising steam it is your it's a big adventure story it's got references to literally everything in it that's your big last number and you walk off the stage and your victory lap yeah and then you know shepherd's crown is your second encore we come back on and it's just it, you don't bring the band on you just bring you and your acoustic guitar
1: I would say it, it's the acoustic encore with the soft version of the big hit that everyone knows. Oh, that just kind of slays you
0: at the end. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but the only other book I think we should probably talk about Hogfather a little bit. I know yep. we, we've gone on we've gone on a bit, but Hogfather is one of my favorite books mostly because it has one of the very very best villains in the entire Discworld over, which is Mr. Tia Timer, oh. who is, he's terrifying. Yes, utterly <laughs> he's so amoral. evil. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I guess. Like, he just sees people as, as machines
1: to take apart. Which is the theme that you see coming up repeatedly in Terry Pratchett, all crimes boiling down to seeing people as things. And so you have this uh, this utter encapsulation of that, who doesn't just do it, but takes a weird sort of joy in it
0: yeah exactly like he it's almost like he's kind of posited as being somebody who is totally amoral but actually he has an amorality that manifests itself in evil for preference if, if Teatime time had, had two ways of doing the same thing and one of them ended with somebody's entrails tied around a tree then that is the one that he would do because yeah, he finds that fun
1: actually as you say that it's a contrast to the basic amorality of death, which tends to the other side.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but you're totally right. Neither did I.
1: It was just something that came up <laughs> as you said it. And I'm like, well, yes, because <laughs> if you think about it, there's death saying, well, if I'm going to have to take someone, I will take someone in the kindest way possible. So a way that gives them a choice, a way that makes it easy for them. And this is someone who, in that, will always take the hard way.
0: Totally. And it's got one of my favourite sequences in a Discworld novel, which is when inside the Tooth Fairy's palace of, you know, ice and teeth, the various, because it's a world essentially created by children, Time can't kill anyone in there because to children death doesn't exist. And it's the reason why death himself can't go in there because death doesn't exist in this world and that's
1: something where it's like it even manifests into the house is a square with a door and two windows and a triangle for a roof and the tree is you know two lines with a circle on top like
0: a lollipop yeah but what does manifest is people's childhood fears and so you get this criminal gang of people who are only some of them are really bad but some of them are just kind of more misguided, but they're all willing to go along with tea time. And they get offed one by one by their childhood fears. And it's like a Stephen King book. It oh, it's is, terrifying. <laughs> it's horrific, but it's
1: really, really good. Yeah, and it's like, there's something, there's actually a really deep reference in there when they talk about the Scissor Man mm. saying that it would come and cut off your thumbs if you sucked your thumbs. And my ex-wife was um, Bavarian German and talked about, uh, I think it's it Peter or something like that, who is yeah, a kobold who would come yeah, had scissors for fingers and terrible tangly hair and would take your finger, and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And this idea where you don't even know what it is, you just hear the snipping coming and everyone falls to pieces because, oh god, it's coming. That's horror as opposed to terror. you know. Yeah,
0: and you get stuff that comes out amongst the characters because two of them are siblings. And it's a lot of stuff about They've obviously all had just appalling childhoods, just, like, terrible, tragic childhoods, and that these things have kind of led them to where they are in these lives of crime, but that's not going to save them. You know, the fact that they are bad guys because, you know... yeah, There is no G-Officer Krupke defence against Susan Stohelit, you know? No. You can't just say, oh, you know, problem is that we got a social disease. They are they're trying to control the whole of the children of the disc so as to kill the Hogfather. And Tia Taiman does that by harnessing the power of the the Tooth Fairy. And this is a a horrific thing to be doing and it's an, an appalling, abysmal thing to be doing and they're going to basically be disappeared by a variety of childhood, buried childhood fears. And it's horrible
1: <laughs> and it's something like we talked earlier about susan not seeing illusions and as such she can be very black and white in these scenarios and say you know these are things that you've told yourself to excuse what you've done and you've still done horrible things and it's funny that you mentioned uh Teotime and that when he's asked to do this thing the auditors hire the assassins guild in akmorpork and they know who to call they call him and he's got a file for every mythical creature on how he would do it if he needed to kill them. Mm. Like, like yeah. he's Professor Xavier and they're the expert. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because that's how a mind like that works. Uh, what was it?
0: The... JLA Tower of Babel story. (laughs) You know, they manage to beat it, they steal Batman's Secret Files. Yeah, and you've got that bit where it's it's one of the reasons I actually like, I really, one of the characters who I think is one of the worst people in the Discworld books is Lord Downey. And this is one of those points because. The kind of banal evil. Yeah. Totally. This kind of John the Missouri in Dad's Army kind of manner to him. But at the same time, he knows exactly what Teatema is like and still. He's like, yeah, sure. You're the guy. You can do it. Yeah, we'll use you. You're a dangerous
1: tool, but you're still a tool.
0: Exactly. And I think I'm smarter than you and therefore I can safely wield you as a weapon, which is the downfall of a lot of people. But I mean, (laughs) because this is the Discworld and people who are purveyors of banal evil often get away with stuff. Lord Downey never in the entire Chronicles of the Discworld gets his comeuppance at all. Like, he's responsible for a lot of... I mean, the Assassin's Guild is a licensed thing and it's legal and everything, but it's still a murder guild, you know? And, I mean, you see it a little bit
1: sort of piece by piece with Vimes fighting back against them. Yeah. Uh, you know, them eventually taking him off the books because they're sick of their various students being sent off to the Far East, tied up in someone's cellar. <sighs> or you know being dropped into a pond that has surprisingly steep
0: and slippery sides yeah where he's he's booby trapped all the the major ways in and out of his own estate just so that he can yeah safely shave in peace yeah and
1: this idea that it's a slow kind of rebellion against the like you said the banal evil it's like right well i'm gonna put consequences on what you think has a lack of consequences slowly bit by bit until you stop as I say, it, it's, you know, it's the way to fight entrenched evil, is to claim it back bit by bit. It's something, where, and we talked a little bit about the illusions, and I think this might be our final point, because you know, he said, you may have run very long, but this is good. So when we talk about the illusions, the big thing at the end of Hogfather is they said they have to save the Hogfather or the sun won't come up. The reveal at the end, and I'm going to spoil it for you, is that they do save him, and the sun comes up. And Susan asks death, would that have really happened, you know, if we hadn't got the Hogfather... Would the sun not have come up? And Death would have said, Yeah, it's absolutely true. Instead, like a bright disk would have just risen above us. <laughs> and Susan's like, Oh, come on. And <laughs> yeah. he's like, No. You can almost just imagine no, her true. just like
0: slapping his arm. Come on. It's
1: like, Oh, that is such shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> but then Death has to say, Well, no, you see, humans have to believe the little lies like the Hogfather father or the soul cake duck or in our, in our case, the Tooth Fairy or the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus, so they can believe the big lies or the big illusions, which is... Like, like justice. And mm. honor and truth. And Susan kind of looks at it and goes, okay. And that's kind of where the book ends with an, a beautiful little epilogue of all of your various side characters getting their perfect Christmas present, mm. including Nobby getting an incredibly dangerous crossbow <laughs> because you need to have your laugh somewhere in there.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's such a great book. I read it every Christmas.
1: So I think that's a nice spot to end on. So, Al, I think we've pretty much touched on why the Death Series is important and great. But if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go?
0: You can go to hostofstonish.com where you will find the Host of Stonish podcast and you also find me on twitter i am at house to astonish and there i talk mostly about comics and you know doctor who yeah, it makes and- some truly terrible pun well I, I gotta say i think they're pretty great i gotta tell you Luke, i think they're pretty great <laughs> that
1: was a quality follow if you want to groan or you know use twitter to shout his name at him
0: <laughs> yep I'll I'll take that.
1: And we will, in fact, have you on for a regular episode at some point so we can talk about something other than Discworld. But thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great.
0: No problems. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much to Al Kennedy for his time. For this episode's signature beverage, I made sure to pick one that I felt would gain the approval of Susan. It's no-nonsense, with only three ingredients and no garnish, and yet it's flavorful and potent enough to nuke any auditors in the room. You've been warned. I call it simply, Death's Door. In a rocks glass, place one large ice cube, add one and a half ounces of Irish whiskey, Half an ounce of green chartreuse, and an ounce of sweet vermouth. Stir a few times to combine. It's got a beat, and you can dance to it. Live fats, die young new. Enjoy! recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Wednesday evening, with a bonus episode in between, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at TheMathOfYou, and you can follow my Wacky Adventures at LOKIFIED, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could drop like a grand. I believe in you. It's within your power. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, cursive tweets, and I would really just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a 5-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? Certain tiers of patronage come with special thanks in the show. So currently, I'd like to thank Allison, Valerie Mott, and Cecilia Hudson. Thanks, everyone. You're all aces. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash You with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist of every song I've ever used in the show going all the way back to episode one. I just checked that's 296 songs That's a lot of songs including this one it's of course there's a guy who works down the chip shop squares he's Elvis by Kirsty McCall and it's a little bit of a jam I'm still working out the schedule to find out which guests will be coming on next but for now I'll leave you with this a man is not dead while his name is still spoken his name was Terry Pratchett